Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me here on the Final Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel and today on the show, I'm going to be joined by Kirsty Jagger. Now, the Final Draft Podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. Every week, Final Draft broadcasts from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, in Australia. And at Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to the authors that you know and love. These conversations look into the issues that drive the author's storytelling, and they help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. To SEO broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I am recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners, and uh, I want to pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with the First Nations. Today, I am joined by Kirsty Jagger. Her new book is Rose Ghetto. This is a terrific story of Sydney. Um, I will acknowledge um, this is like. It, a, a, a tremendous book that deals with some pretty heavy themes. Uh, there will be another warning at the beginning of the interview, but just letting people know, um, like if heavy themes are not what you're looking for today, this um, this might be an episode just to pop on pause. But acknowledging that Kirsty deals with these issues in a compelling, immediate way, this is a fantastic story to help you uh, help you explore some of these ideas around growing up, around what it means to grow up in uh, impoverished and difficult conditions. So today I am joined by Kirsty Jagger. We are discussing her new book, Rose Ghetto, and uh, join me. Kirsty, welcome. It is so lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. I like we talked off air about. I really want to share this book with people. I feel like this book is an absolute gut punch. I'm going to give people a little bit of an intro and, and give an idea, and then I think we're going to be diving deep. Shayla is working on an assignment for her newspaper when she returns to Westminster Way. Her brief is exploring new integrated housing developments and how they mix social housing with private. Shayla grew up in Westminster Way, and she wasn't prepared to see the street and surrounding suburb levelled in preparation for shiny new homes. The site throws up memories of Shayla's early life and how it has brought her to where she is today. Kirsty, you wrote this. You know I am being like deliberately obtuse there and, and not getting too much into detail. I am, though, going to give the listeners a bit of a content warning because our conversation uh, will like potentially include discussion of uh, themes like sexual assault and domestic violence. If this brings up things for anyone, Lifeline, uh, you can call on 131114. And uh, look, if it's not something you're ready for in your day right now, that's okay. Press pause, come back to us later. But Kirsty, I, I really want to talk about this because so much of what you have to say in Rose Ghetto is really important. Let's ease ourselves into the story though. We live and travel through Shayla's life with her and music, it pervades her early life. I, I really sort of, I noted this theme, um, particularly through her mum and this, the ever-present and varied band shirts that she wear. It's a solid classic rock lineup. And I wondered, just to set the scene for the story, how you used music to sort of establish that place in that time. Yeah, look, I think a lot of it was memory. Um, I, my, my family was quite musical and I love music and actually created a um a spotify playlist for this book so if you want to listen to the songs that feature in the book you can check it out online um but i think for me i have a soundtrack for everything if i quit a job i've got a song for that 
got a breakup playlist. Like I'm quite, I quite like music and I like all types of music. And I think there's, um, particularly with Lauren's character, she's, she's really a product of her time and place. And I think um, pop culture in like, you know, the seventies, eighties, it did glamorize some pretty toxic relationships. And I wanted to use some of that music to frame her perspective and, and the relationships that she has um, and, you know, she has this idea that, you know, true love should hurt. And I think it's something that uh, I, I think it's something that I saw through a lot of pop media that my my family consumed. Um, and it's, shift, it's shifted over the last few years. There's There's been a different kind of conversation happening um, in pop culture. Uh, so I wanted to use that music to really create a sense of um, character for Lauren in mm. particular. I love it. It was really interesting. Like it's wasn't all stuff that I would have um, sort of gone out of my way to listen to, but it really evoked the time and the place. I wondered about like a lot of it is Lauren's, as you say. I wondered about Shayla. Like I feel like Shayla would maybe be getting into some camp cope now. I feel like maybe uh, maybe I don't know if it's on there. I haven't checked out the Spotify playlist, but the opener feels like it'd be really like kind of in Shayla's ballpark. <laughs> Yeah, look, I think Shayla, you know, I think Shayla's attraction to Mirko as well um, is related to his love of music. Um, so th- there's definitely this, a lot of, the book is very musical and um, and the characters that Shayla loves, um, her mother, Lauren and Mirko, her, her high school boyfriend, there's a lot of music in those relationships. And I think, I think we all have those moments, you know, our, our song with our special person, our song for our first kiss or whatever it might be that these, these moments in our lives are often there's a musical component to them and I, I hoped to capture that in this particular book. Mm. Now, if, if Lauren's musical tastes helps us establish kind of a time and a place, uh, very much the story of Rose Ghetto is told to us through Shayla, first as a toddler and then as she grows through to adulthood. But Lauren is very much this central figure and it struck me that this story might look very different through her eyes Tell me a little bit about crafting Shayla's perspective. Like you, we literally, we meet her as a very small child um, and how Shayla's perspective helped you tell the story that you wanted to tell. Yeah, I, mean, I think writing Shayla's perspective, particularly as a three-year-old when you first meet her, is, was difficult. You know, writing a three-year-old as a 35-year-old woman is, is a challenge. Uh, and I had to tap into some friends who have three-year-olds to find out how they speak, um, the kind of words that they have. Um, so there's a bit of research that went into that. And one of the things that had to be very deliberate with Shayla's um, kind of taking in of the world was that she she's listening a lot. She's very observant and she's listening to these very adult conversations happening around her. Um, and often the people who are having these adult conversations around her, kind of because she's listening quietly, they, they've kind of forgotten she's there. And so she's getting a lot of adult information. And she's getting that information because I needed to get that information to the reader um, through Shayla without Shayla having kind of a perspective or opinion on it. So a lot of the time Shayla's just listening and observing and, you know, that's kind of translating this information um, to the reader so they've got an idea about what's going on. Um, so that that piece of work was really interesting to work on. Um, I think the other thing is that as Shayla grows, she, she looks at the world kind of matter-of-factly. There's not a lot of judgment. Um, she kind of just takes things as they are. And it doesn't, without judgment, doesn't mean things are pretty or, you know, nice. They just are what they are. Um, and I think that's a really good 
opportunity for readers to make of it what they want as well. It gives them permission to interpret it the way that they want to without being told how they should feel about it or how they should respond to the particular situations that Shayla's in. She's, she's often quite, um, I don't know, there's, sometimes there's not a lot of emotion there, which I think is good because I think it actually gives the reader the opportunity to fill that gap a little bit. Um, so I'm not sure if that's answered your question. I think I lost the second half of your question. I really, <laughs> I, will, I mean, I really, I really like, um, I guess, the, the dual uh, roles of Shayla's narrative, especially in those early years there, that it, it is simply a way for us to hear the story and understand the story, but also thinking there a little bit about Shayla's responses. We talked off air about this. Like, I, there's a lot of really heavy stuff that we are going to get to, but I'm also, I'm not going to go too much into detail for a lot of reasons. Like, I don't want to spoil the story. I also want to be really conscious of our audience and um, it might not be stuff that they want to hear right now. But I guess what I'm, I guess what I want to get around here is that things happen to Shayla and I, I think readers are going to have opinions about that. Um, was it hard to, and, and of course Shayla can only react in the way that she reacts. Was it hard to sort of balance all the different ways that this could play out to really get to the heart of what you wanted to do and what you wanted to say through Shayla and her experiences? I think I've been as deliberate in my writing as people would potentially think I have been. I think a lot of um, what happened with the book kind of happened organically and it, it gets to a point when you're writing where your characters kind of take on their own life and it starts to feel like you're just transcribing what they would do. Mm. Um, and so Shayla really took on her own personality and, you know, I, it did feel like I was just t transcribing what she would do. And I think when you try and make a character do something, it starts to feel, um, it just doesn't work. Like it starts to feel forced. So I think, you know, I, I feel like a lot of, um, what's in the book is actually a happy accident. My, one of my friends told me not to say that. She said to say that it was uh, subconscious creativity, uh, which probably is a nice and sales pitch, but I think a lot of it just kind of came out in the writing process and Shayla really took on her own, her own life. Yeah. Her story has, well, I guess Shayla is the hero of her own story and her story actually has elements of, the hero's journey for people that are familiar with, I guess, that kind of archetype of storytelling. Were you conscious from the outset that you wanted to craft a story arc in this way, or is that part of that emergence that you were just talking about? I think that I went into this with, you know, I, I wrote this book not thinking that every, anyone would ever read it. So for it to be published is like, you know, magical and it's very exciting. I think that gave me a lot of freedom to write just what I wanted to write and how I wanted to write it because I didn't think it would end up in people's hands and on their bookshelves. Um, so a lot of it, you know, isn't deliberate. And this is what I talk about, you know, sometimes I feel a little bit of imposter syndrome and it makes me nervous about um, doing movies and talking about the books and being asked really intelligent questions like this because, you know, I'm not, a, you know, I'm a, I'm a trained journalist, I'm not a trained writer. It's not something that I, you know, I didn't do a Master's of Creative Writing and when people ask me about all of these special technical things, I don't necessarily have um, that background or, you know, I think a lot of it's kind of happened by accident, by reading a lot. I think you read, if you read a lot, often you get a sense of how you should write or you write the kind of book that you like reading. Um, but maybe I just wasn't smart enough. But no, I didn't I didn't step into the writing this book with a particular 
view and the book changed many times. Um, the book really shifted a lot. The book that I started out writing is not the book that I have today. Uh, this one's a lot better, but there was, you know, a lot of change in there and I kind of just went with it. It was a really organic kind of process for me and I did it as a hobby. I did it because I love writing and I love reading um, and I didn't expect anything to come of it. So I just kind of did what I liked and here we are. Mm. I mean, I think a lot of incredible writers such as yourself have echoed the sentiment that if you want to write, then you need to read. Before anything else, you must be a reader. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you write kind of the books that you that you enjoy reading. And for me, I really enjoy, um, I, I like a fictional character in a real time and place. I think it makes it the character more believable for me. It makes me a bit more invested in the character. I love a gritty kind of story and I love an underdog. And I think if you look at Rose Ghetto, all of those kind of elements are in there. So I think, you know, I've kind of, by reading these types of books, it's probably just somewhere in my subconscious creativity, as my friend would say, kind mm. of come out on the page. Thematically, Shayla's life, uh, her experiences, they're shaped by poverty, they're shaped by violence, they're shaped by a feeling of being subject to forces beyond her control. There is a lot to unpack here and I'm, I'm brushing the surface without getting to specifics, but I was hoping you could actually help me start here by, by talking about where the story started for you dealing with these themes. That's a good question. Look, I think I grew up, look, I grew up in Rose Meadow. Um, I grew up all over Western Sydney, but Rose Meadow, I spent a period of time in the place always stayed with me. Um, and you know, at the time, it wasn't a particularly nice place. There were lots of social issues in the housing estates there. Uh, the area's changed a lot since then, um, which the book also reflects on. Um, but, you know, there was there was poverty. The kids I went to school with were you know, struggling to get lunch and teachers were feeding them with little um, McDonald's um, awards. So there were these awards in the, like, early noughties where there was, like, a Macca's award for achievement. You could rip a little voucher off the side. And that's how some of the kids were getting getting fed or they were shoplifting from Woolworths and trying to get their lunch that way. So there was a lot of poverty um, and there was there was a lot of violence. And I think the violence as well was often, and you'll see in the book, is, is unreported. And I think, I don't think that's actually um, representative of just that particular time, that place either. I don't think it's just that place. I think it was an, a kind of an era thing what happened behind closed doors stayed behind closed doors and people didn't want to get involved in other people's business because they didn't want people involved in their business. And I think we've seen a culture shift from, from that. I hope we've seen a culture shift from that. Um, certainly it's something that I've observed. So, you know, there, there is inspiration taken from growing up in, in Rose Meadow in those public housing estates. Um, I think where I got the beginning and the end of the book was I, like Shayla, went back to Rose Meadow uh, when I was doing a writing course. And as a journalist, my drafts were kind of skeletal. You, you learn to write in a very succinct, um, factual kind of way. And so I didn't have that gorgeous detail of, of the place that I needed. And, you know, my memory wasn't serving me particularly well. So I went back to take some photos. And it was when I went back and realised that the um, that my home and, in, in fact, the entire street had been demolished. It kind of gifted me the beginning and the end of the book. Uh, and then it was just a matter of kind of fitting all of the stuff in the middle, which is no small feat. There's a, there's a big chunk in the middle there. Um, but that's probably where the key inspirations kind of came from for the book. Mm. You talked there a little bit about um, 
the way things have changed or perhaps have changed. And I, I wonder also if part of that change is we've expanded our vocabulary to talk about things that were going on, the things you described there behind closed doors that you didn't bother other people's stuff because you didn't want them bothering yours. And here I want to sort of get to, um, I guess, well, there's a couple of themes I want to get to, and perhaps one of them is a theme of control. I don't want to dig too deep into the, the violence of the book for, as I said before, a few different reasons, but the idea of control, or and we also call now coercive control, is something that I think we are increasingly coming to grips with as a society. You have several really powerful depictions in the book of the ways men control women through finances, through emotional manipulation. What was important for you to highlight about this? I wanted to show how insidious the silence is. Um, it creeps up and it often starts off sometimes in a way that can be depicted as romantic. You've got a partner who's jealous, you know, they're a little bit possessive and we, we think that we're desired and we're loved and that person wants to protect us. And then it, it, then it can escalate from there. And, you know, and so Rob's character has been very carefully designed to show this gradual escalation of violent behaviours from him being possessive to him, uh, you know, having financial control, isolating, you know, Shayla and her mother from friends and family um, to becoming physically violent. So there's, there's animal violence and there's, there's violence against um, Shayla and her mother. But all of these things happen very gradually. Um, and so at the start, you know, Rob's not, he might be a bit awkward, he might be a bit mean, but he's not hes not horrible. And the interesting thing for Lauren as well is that she's comparing a prior relationship, which was highly, highly dangerous and very, very toxic and just incredibly bad, to this relationship. And she's in her mind, she's like, well, actually, it's not so bad. Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean it's good. But I think it's, it speaks to how a lot of women, um, particularly women who have experienced trauma in relationships, whether it's been family or it's been in partners that they've, you know, taken through their lives, um, can get stuck in cycles where this violence kind of perpetuates um, over and over again. And, you know, and, and the book is, is not just about the systems that Shayla and Lauren get stuck in. It is the cycles Mm. Um, and we, we all get stuck in cycles. Everyone gets stuck in st systems and cycles through their lives at some point or another. Some are more dangerous and toxic than others. But I really wanted to show how some of these behaviours that we think might be romantic at the start of a relationship can actually become really dangerous. Um, and so it is important not to look at all of your relationships with rose-tinted glasses or to think that this is, you know, it's not, you know, it's not great, but it's not that bad either um, because things do escalate. And I hope that this book helps raise that red flag in the minds of readers when they encounter some of these situations in real life uh, where they see behaviours kind of escalating and go, you know, and talk to your friends. If you, if you, you know, have a friend who is in a relationship that doesn't seem quite right, you know, tap them on the shoulder and, and check if they're okay. You don't have to make a judgment about their relationship, but you should check in on them, have a coffee, have a chat you know, try and engage what's going on because people do become isolated in these relationships. Uh, that's how these people take their power and control. Um, and, you know, for Lauren, it's very difficult because she doesn't have any friends and she doesn't have any family saying to her, hey, this isn't okay, you shouldn't leave. Um, so, you know, she stays because she doesn't have anyone giving her perspective 
on the situation that she's in and she can't see it clearly from being inside. So I think, you know, there's there's a lot to unpack there around about violent relationships. Mm. I'd probably echo but but also call out, I hope a lot of men read this um, because it, it shouldn't just be uh, women reading this and tapping their friends on the shoulder and saying, hey, things are okay. It should also be guys saying... I, I'm not sure about what I'm seeing here. There's um, there's a really powerful scene. I, I hope I've got this right. Um, where, uh, but basically, um, without giving too many details away, Shayla is in a conversation where she is told to the effect of, "It's not like I hit you." And I mean, I, I need men to, you know, men men need to read this sort of stuff and and to see what a fucking low bar has been set for actually being a good guy. Um, in yeah. the world, and um, and you know, until we until we take that on ourselves, it's it's very hard to be better. Yeah, and I think it, it there there is a low bar to to being a good guy sometimes, and that's really really disturbing. I think the other thing is is that there's you know toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just impact women; it impacts young men too, um, and and so all of us should be fighting the good fight against this toxic masculinity because it, you know I think people think of it as a feminist issue but actually it isn't a human issue mm. um, men should be able to express themselves in healthy ways and and seek help for problems without feeling any shame and I think there's still stigma around this we've got this weird sense of this heightened hyper masculinity and it's not good for the people who try and exert that in their lives um and we should be providing a space that gives people permission to just be the people that they are um, and get the help and support that they need and treat everyone with respect. And I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really, really big issue, particularly I think for young men who, who feel the need to fit in um, and will copy behaviours, even sometimes if they don't agree with them. Um, so, you know, there, there's a big culture that needs to shift in calling out toxic masculinity and it's women and men and everyone that need to kind of be part of that conversation. Mm. And that it is just so, so terrifically explored in the book, um, the way those relationships impact on each other and, and reverberate through uh, generations. I actually had a whole, my next question was going to be kind of around this Kirsty, but we might just, we might just skip over it because I think we've probably covered, covered the, the broad uh, sort of details just now. I do want to come, though, to the way those experiences play out uh, more largely in, in Shayla's early life and in the society she lives in because she experiences horrible, criminal things in, in her young life. But in the suburbs where she grows up, speaking to the police is verboten. And this is because people in these areas, they've learned through hard experience that they are as likely or more likely to be profiled as the perpetrators of crime than just simply being those who are victims or those who need help. How did you want to handle these these tense relationships with authority? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I mean, the police are kind of ever-present in Rosemeadow, but they're also kind of absent, aren't they? Um, I think, I, I mean, it's a really difficult... There's a, I feel like there was a terrific scene that illustrates what you just said there about the ever-presence in the absence where there's a, a – I can't remember if it was a, um, a marked or an unmarked police car that was just understood that sat on the street and 
um, forgetting, I forget what the instigating event was, but a, a group of like, I think, I think they were skinhead guys just kind of marched on the police car because of whatever had happened. And the car takes off, which, I mean, I feel like, you know, in any other, um, say, eastern suburbs, uh, suburb of Sydney, the, the residents would rightly expect the police would stand their ground and pr- protect. And it's a really, I mean, and I don't want to, I don't want to be bashing on the police here, but it is really important to acknowledge that the relationships that happen in different areas of every city in every world are uh, really complex. And for people who are extremely vulnerable, they don't always get the support that they need. Yeah. And I think, look at it. The, the American Redburn design of housing that was implemented in Rosemary was also implemented in Billwood. And um, I think the architect at one point was quoted saying that it, you know, it became like hell, like people became the centre of violence, became the centre of drugs, and eventually the police stopped going there because there was actually a risk to the police going there. Um, so I think... You know, I think something similar kind of happened with Rose Meadow, maybe not to the same extent because there was a police presence, but I think people stopped expecting help, maybe. I'm not really sure. I think look, the, the, the lack of police presence there from Shayla's perspective, I'd say is pretty accurate. And it's not necessarily that the police aren't available to help. It's that there's not a willingness to report mm. domestic violence um, people are worried about losing their kids and people, you know, often go through this cycle of going, oh, you know, he won't hit me again or, you know, all of those types of things. So people kind of withhold from reporting. And it's why domestic violence is so underreported even now. Mm. You know, data at the moment, New South Wales was telling us that over the, I think, seven years or something, domestic violence um, incidents have increased Um which is terrifying if you look at it just in isolation. But actually, I think what's happening here is that there's been an increase in reporting. Um, So it might be the same or slightly elevated levels of violence, but what we're seeing is an increase in reporting. And that's because there are more conversations happening in the media and in pop culture. Um, There's less stigma. There's more services. So there's been a real big shift around reporting um, domestic violence to police. But this book being said in like the late 90s, early noughties, when there was still a lot of stigma, there is an underreporting um, that's kind of reflected in this book um, because that is how it was at the time. People were concerned um, about reporting violence. There was a stigma. People were naturally nervous. So I think, you know, the police were there. Um, there was a lack of reporting. Mm. So they're kind of there, but they're kind of non-present. It's... It's a mix of the police and the people. Yeah. And I want to circle back to the the question that I had before because it, it feels relevant here that you show us also that in, in spaces where people may feel they have very little power, there is still that hierarchy. And what you show us, I guess, through many of the men in the book is that even when you, you know, don't feel great, you don't feel like there's a lot going on in your life, there is a way to exert power on someone else. And this is very much typified through Rob, but through other men that you will exert that power. And that, that control that comes out is what creates both the cycle of violence, but also that um, environment of silence that you were just describing there. Yeah. I think Rob's such an interesting character. And I think um, I'm very interested to see how readers kind of relate to him, but yes, I think, 
it is it's, it's an interesting piece where people will exert the small some people not all people but there are some people who will exert the small amount of authority they've got in their life to make someone else I don't think that they do it to make someone else miserable, but they do it to make themselves feel bigger. Mm. They will minimise other people to, or minimise other people to make themselves feel bigger. And Rob doesn't have a lot going on in his life, and and maybe that is a, a reason for this behaviour. It's not one that I'd considered before, actually. Um, but you know, I think it's probably indicative of a much larger issue in that kind of broader spectrum of, mm. of violence. I was a little bit curious about this, and I remember as I was reading, I, I, I had a question that I wanted to ask you, which hasn't ultimately made it onto the page in front of me, but it's resurfaced. Yeah, <laughs> it's resurfaced in the conversation, and I think yep. the reason the reason I held off was because I was I was a little bit afraid of the answer, uh, because in Rob we have, um, in the nicest possible way, we have a character who can border on caricature of, of his evil, like the, the way he behaves. And I guess one of the reasons I didn't want to ask was because I was afraid you were going to tell me, no, this, there is no caricature here. This is, this is very much, you know, someone that you will, you will find someone that you can read about someone that, you, and so, do you have a sense of Rob as in any way being an extended version of reality or is he very much a person that in the wrong circumstance you can meet? I think there are lots of Robs out there in the world. Mm. Uh, I think there's lots of Robs out there. And I think Rob will feel real for many, many readers. Um, yeah. So I, I do I do think that he, sadly, the types of behaviours that he exhibits throughout this book are, are you know, reflective of behaviours that people will experience from, from violent partners um, as they travel through the world. So, yeah. The um, you know, in, in terms of talking about real life, you know, he is a composite character. I've pulled together lots of people's experiences that I kind of seen around me and brought them into one character. So, well, just like Shayla, is a vehicle for uh, many people's stories. And so, you know, while it might seem extreme in the book, these are behaviours that mm. would be exhibited across multiple people. And, you know, people don't jump straight to violence. They don't jump straight to, you know, murdering their partners at an extreme. That doesn't happen in the book. But, you know, there, there's, you know, one woman a week in Australia is killed by a partner, current or former partner. So, you know, people don't just jump straight to being murderous, evil people. There is a pro there is a whole process that happens in the lead up to that. Um, so, yes, I think Rob will feel very real for readers that have experienced domestic violence. Yeah. And I think that was why I was afraid to ask because I, I you know, and I knew, I, I knew I was being naive to feel like that this was somehow uh, simply a literary device. I want to, I want to take us on a little bit of a turn now because as, as hard as many of the themes of this book are, there is also a lot to love, especially in Shayla's character. And I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Shayla's love of reading. We are a book show after all. Um, her reading, her academic prowess, they're a big part of her success as she grows up. There, it's also a challenge to her. It's also something that she um, she struggles to to sort of believe in herself. No question. I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about that love of and power of reading. <laughs> yeah, I look. I think I think reading. I think this is a book for anyone who's ever turned to literature for comfort or company or escape in their life. Um, Shayla does just that, and it gives her hope 
and I think ambition to to follow her own dreams. And she's um, you know, her grandfather's very supportive of her following that dream to become a writer. Um, and he shares her love of books. And I think there's something very special around the books that are included because I, firstly there's you know an ode to a couple of Australian books in there you know the books that you if you grew up in the 90s and early 90s you you'll have read some of these books growing up you know Selby Speaks you know how the birds got their colors all of these types of things would have been on your school shelves those books have been used to create a particular sense of time and place as well mm-hmm. and so people that grew up in that era just like they'll be able to relate to the music that their parents were listening to they'll be able to relate to the books um, and other kind of pop culture references throughout the book. Um, but it is, you know, I think I think reading, as as an avid reader myself, I think you live many lives um, as a reader that you wouldn't necessarily get the opportunity to. And I think that's a really important moment for Shayla is that she can live another life, many other lives. She can escape what's happening around her. And she, and she wants to be able to provide that escape to other people and she, you know, she kind of throws herself into it. And I think it's also that curiosity and that love of learning and being open to new ideas um, that comes from reading that that sets her up for success. You know, she's she's willing to learn, she's willing to read, she's willing to take it all in. And and just like she's observing the world around her, she's observing these new worlds that she's exploring through books, and that gives her kind of this passport to the world. Yeah. So Shayla's story is ultimately hopeful, redemptive even. But as she looks back on her life, she remembers her friends, Sean and Charlie. Um, she grew up with in Westminster Way. She wonders if, if they too had a chance to get out to do the things that they wanted to do. We all need hope, but I also wondered in these stories, is there a need to look beyond the triumphs of strong individuals like Shayla to look at more wide-ranging reforms, more... I guess, inclusive ways of looking at the world that lift everyone up? Well, what a good question. Yes, I think so. And I think look, the beauty about fiction is that mm. you can get to the end of the book and you can think whatever you want to think of Charlie and Sean. I had written a slightly different ending uh, where Sean did did become a famous football player and they, they Shayla met him back on the side. Two fairy tale for real life. Um, but I like to think that Sean and Charlie got happy endings that they deserve. We all, I guess, in one way or another, no matter how dire a situation can be, we all want our our characters to have wonderful lives and you know and they're such beautiful characters as well that you do you do want them to be successful. Um but I think I'll leave that to the readers. In my mind, everyone wins. But um, you know, I like a happy ending. Thanks so much, Kirsty. They are they are all the questions, the many questions that I had for you. I am speaking with Kirsty Jagger. We are discussing her debut novel. It is called Rose Ghetto. And look, I really appreciate the time you've taken to to get into so many of these big, heavy issues. I'm just gonna remind people, like this was a conversation that dealt with a lot of big issues, a lot of issues that are, you know, ever present in our society. If this has brought up anything for you, you can call Lifeline on 131114. And Kirsty. Thank you so much. All the success with Rose Ghetto. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for joining me here on the Final Draft podcast. Thank you also to Kirsty Jagger. Her new book is Rose Ghetto and it is out now. Go check it out. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. 
Stay in touch. Keep in touch. Get in touch. You will find Final Draft on socials. Look for at Final Draft 2SCR. You can email us, finaldraft at 2SCR.com. And look, most importantly, if you could give us a like, a thumbs up, a ratings, a star, however they do it on the podcast app that you are listening, those help people find us. In turn, it helps them find the authors that um, we are talking to. It is a great way to support Australian writing and to support the podcast. My name's Andrew Popel. I am going to be back with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors here on Final Draft. Until then, happy reading. Bye for now.